following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. What a great stanza of that hymn to be praying that the Lord would use his word as we read and mark it, meaning that we heed it and we're conformed to it. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 15, the Israelites have celebrated with song the great deliverance of God through the Red Sea. And then, not long after that, they are complaining about thirst. And so God provides through the waters of Merah and the springs of Elam. And we pick up the account in chapter 16 where we follow along with what is happening with them. Hear God's word. Exodus chapter 16. They set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord." For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. 
You shall take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. This is the word of God. About a week and a half ago, Patty and I returned from a trip to El Paso, Texas, where her family is. And as we do almost every year, we flew over hundreds of miles of western terrain. I couldn't help but think of the pioneers who had slowly made their way across that terrain in years past. Those great expanses, many of them in Conestoga wagons named after the place where they were made here locally in Lancaster. Many of them on horseback, many of them walking. Wouldn't they be amazed to see us step on a plane and within hours be across those expanses that they labored across for days and weeks and months? The Christian life is a journey, a wilderness journey. It's a journey of faith and obedience. It's a journey that calls for daily trust in the Lord. It's a journey that involves suffering and God's loving and fatherly testing of those who belong to him through faith in Christ, testing in the sense of his discipline and work in our life. Truly, it's a wilderness journey that is always a fight of faith for the believer. And understandably, there are times that we would wish that we could skip the journey and arrive immediately at the destination, fly over it like we do in a plane. We often have an aversion to and dislike the road that actually leads us to the glorious presence of our God. But we know from Scripture that on every wilderness road, God wants us to grow in our dependence on him. He wants to teach us to be satisfied in him alone above everything else. And you and I must learn how to call upon God and to grow in faith when we find ourselves on the wilderness road. This is the theme that we find in Exodus 16. My first point is this. God's purpose in our wilderness journey is that we learn to trust him more deeply. God's purpose in the wilderness is that you and I learn to trust him more deeply in our daily life. In our text, we see the Israelites facing real need. They have been miraculously delivered by God. He's brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, these awful plagues that God has brought upon the Egyptians and this amazing deliverance through the Red Sea on dry ground. They had just experienced this. He has destroyed Pharaoh and his mighty army, but they are now thirsty. And at the end of chapter 15, God satisfies that thirst, and now they're hungry, and they're grumbling against the Lord. Grumbling to Moses and Aaron, but... Moses says to them, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. But before we look at the specifics of their grumbling, as we think about trusting the Lord, look at the divine interpretation we have of what the experiences of the Israelites were in Deuteronomy 8, where we hear a recap 
of what they were going through. In Deuteronomy 8, beginning at verse 2, Moses writes there, and this is 40 years after the fact. This is about when they're about to enter the land. And he says, And and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you those 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Here's this inspired interpretation of what the Israelites were going through. And what does this God's eye view tell us about the wilderness journey that they were in and that we are likewise in, in this Christian walk? Clearly, the point is that God has wise purposes in the wilderness for us. He wants to test us. Test meaning not just to know it as if he doesn't already know, but to grow our dependence on him, to teach us deeper faith. He wants us to learn to live not merely by physical bread, which Deuteronomy 8 talks about, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that word in this context is primarily, yes, it certainly speaks about God's written and spoken word, but that word in Deuteronomy 8 is primarily speaking of God's word of providential control and sovereign rule over the circumstances of our lives. It's that word of God by which he holds together all things and controls the universe and rules over all. God wants us to recognize that our lives are under his sovereign word of care and control. And he wants our trust to be more and more in him. And he expertly and wisely and exquisitely orders our every circumstance to teach us more deeply this lesson of dependence and trust in our loving God. What is the wilderness journey for you like right now? Sometimes the road is bearable, sometimes even relatively pleasant and serene in this life. There are good times. Sometimes the road becomes increasingly dry and barren, and then there are the times that it's seemingly unbearable. Often the journey is what we might call ordinary wilderness, the pressures of daily life, the normal ups and downs, the flat tire, the low-level strains in our relationships with family members, husband and wife, parent and child, uh, problems at the job or in the school, but normal kinds of things, too many bills, not enough money to go around, too much stress, too much busyness, even having a common cold for a week. That's the ordinary wilderness experience. One year at the Philadelphia airport, we were coming back from a trip and noticed there were people at our gate who had been waiting at that gate for 24 hours in a big snowstorm. We had gotten in just at the right time airport was all backed up. They weren't really that happy, it didn't seem. 
that's the ordinary kind of experience. I mean, that's maybe pushing it a little bit, but they all eventually got home, I'm sure. But then there are the more serious wilderness times. Financial ruin and loss. Betrayal by a spouse. Chronic pain that doesn't go away. The death of a child. Maybe it's being single when you long to be married. Maybe it's the distress of infertility for a couple facing that and how hard that is. Maybe it's a deep alienation from an adult child and years of not interacting with that individual. The list goes on. You can fill in the blank. But whether your present experience is ordinary wilderness or especially hard right now, in either case, Exodus 16 and Deuteronomy chapter 8 are telling us that God has us in the wilderness for a purpose. That we would learn more deeply to trust in him and in his all-wise, loving, fatherly purposes. His word, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. And ultimately, that is bringing us into greater conformity to Christ our Lord and glorifies Jesus Christ our Lord as we trust in him. Secondly, we learn from our text that our grumbling is a reflection of a heart that is not fully trusting the Lord. Our grumbling is a reflection of our hearts that do not fully trust the Lord. We're learning more deeply to trust in him, but the reality is that we do not many times And we see this in the Israelites. We see it in them, but we often don't recognize it in ourselves. We see in verse 2 that the Israelites are hungry, and the whole congregation grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the people said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. It's pretty interesting, isn't it, how they um, thought back about their experience in Egypt? It's like uh, the reality didn't connect with the real life. And we see the Israelites in Exodus 16 experiencing the wilderness and the temptation to grumble. And then we look at Deuteronomy 8 and see the other extreme. And the Lord warns them, when you go into the land and have bounty and have abundance... Don't forget me. It's almost as like the Christian walk is this pathway with the guardrails on both sides of God's word, warning us, guiding us, directing us. And if we look at these two texts, on one side there's a ditch that is grumbling because life is hard. On the other side is the ditch of forgetting the Lord because life is pretty good right now. Both of those are temptations that the Lord would keep us on the straight and narrow. And both of those are ways that we can fall into the ditch. Grumbling and forgetting both expose the true orientation of our hearts. And God's purpose in his testing of us is not just to expose our heart, but to to build in us a Christ-centered trust. That in that experience of need, in that desert experience, he would teach us of himself and show us his grace and help us more deeply to experience communion with him. 
Think about it. Think about how our hearts tend to react to the reality of life in this world. The reality is things are just not the way they ought to be. It's because we live in a fallen, broken world. Maybe some of you got to go on a vacation this year, and maybe, you know, afterwards you needed a vacation from your vacation because of the tension and the family strife, and you're like one of those parents, be quiet, kids, in the back seat, you know, and reaching back there. And, and, you know, it's not all that you thought it was going to be. Well, hopefully your vacation wasn't too bad, if you got to have one at least. But nothing in this world ever fully satisfies We know that the scriptures tell us that, but it's not the reality we sometimes think about. Think what it must have been like for these Israelites to be given manna, the bread of heaven, a gift from God, and how good it must have been when they were hungry to eat this amazing, miraculous bread, and then the next day to eat it again. Well, think about year 39, how that manna was. Even the best gifts of God on this life don't fully and perpetually satisfy. We had a neighbor in New Jersey who, at one point, started to bring us day-old pastries. I'm not sure where he got these, but he had access to a bakery, and they had too many for them, so they brought them to us. Chocolate croissants, you know, and these delicious cherry and apple pastries. And I know I'm making you hungry here, and it's, not, it's almost lunch, but... but Oh, we love those. Our kids love those. And then the next week, you brought us another bag, and the next week, another bag. And you know what happened? We started to say, oh, the same thing. Chocolate croissants. Ah, we're tired of that. The best thing, if you have it, I like that Bill Cosby monologue that people my age know when he had his tonsils removed, and he was looking forward to having ice cream. And he was saying, ice cream, we're going to have ice cream. And then the monologue goes on, and he has ice cream morning, noon, and night. And he's sick of ice cream. And Bill Cosby just makes that so funny because we know that's part of our human experience. We know that the reality of life is that this world doesn't ever fully satisfy. And not only that, there's the brokenness and suffering that comes with life in our mortal state and ultimately death for each of us. And we must not put our ultimate hope in the fading things of this world, however good they may be in their place. Think with me about some of the hard issues behind the Israelites grumbling. Still under point two, I've got three heart issues here. One is they distorted the wilderness by making unwise comparisons. They distorted the wilderness by making unwise comparisons. Look at verse three again. And the people of Israel said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And they talk about the food that they had there. You would have thought that from hearing this complaint in verse 3, that Egypt had been a four- or five-star resort, the way they remembered it. It was so wonderful. Uh, Do you remember that you were slaves back there? No, it's a whole fantasy world. How unwise and how deadly to our rightly cultivating trust in the Lord, when we start making comparisons, when we look at someone else's life and think, Lord, why don't you give me what that person has? I think that would be best for me. Look at that other person's appearance or look at that person's ability. Look at his or her job or her family or his money or her health or that person's personality or that 
opportunity that individual had. We can, we can go on and on about the comparisons that we unwisely make to people around us. Why is my journey so hard? Of course, we have a somewhat distorted view of what that other person's life is really like. We're idealizing it. I think it's so sad the way young people sometimes celebrate celebrities who have such broken lives, and yet the media works in such a way that make it look like it's an enviable thing when it's so sad. We must not be comparing ourselves. It's unwise. We distort our experience. A second hard issue that we see from their grumbling is that they looked at the future with fear-dominated expectations. They looked at the future with fear-dominated expectations. Again, in verse 3, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. Don't you see how they're, what they're saying assumes the worst? If only we had died there, why? Because obviously we are certainly going to die here, and it's going to be even worse than dying back there. It's going to be slow and painful. We're dying of hunger here, Moses. And so better to have died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, better to have died as slaves. Do you see the fear-dominated expectation they had about their experience? Their hearts were being dominated by fear without being moderated by faith in the Lord. And again, they're interpreting reality without factoring in the Lord and his grace and his power and his word in their lives. You that had algebra. I know you kids probably have algebra now in third grade. They teach it so young now. But, you know, remember algebra when you're doing your X and your Ys and you're trying to solve that equation and you, you're lining things up. And what happens if you leave a variable out and the whole problem doesn't work? No, you have to factor in all the variables. The Israelites were doing their algebra here and they were leaving out the most important factor the Lord and his power and his grace. And they were looking at their wilderness experiencing and they were groaning and complaining to Moses and Aaron and saying, oh, we're going to die. A fear-based expectation. But don't we all know from our own experience how easy it is to do that very thing? A third heart issue was that the Israelites sought ultimate control of their circumstances. They were grumbling because they were really seeking to ultimately be in control of their lives, which is the tendency we all have as well. It's not wrong to put forth effort in life to improve your lot, and that's right and good. It's not wrong to be active in providing for your family and yourself. In fact, Scripture says if anyone doesn't do that, he's denied the faith. It's Something would be wrong if you did not do all you could to to make your way in this world, to provide for yourself, to avoid sickness and injury and hunger and so forth. But we can only do so much. You and I are greatly limited. We are not all-powerful. We are not omnipotent. Anyone who's been unemployed for any length of time knows what this feeling is like, that you are not in control of the circumstances of your life. And learning dependence on the Lord means that we humbly recognize that we are not in control. It's the Lord who's in control. And notice the different ways that the Israelites tried to be in control, even to the point of disobeying God's clear command. In Exodus 16, I didn't read it all, but it goes on past where we ended the reading, and 
God had said to them, gather enough for one day. Gather enough manna for one day. And in verses 19 and 20, some of them try to gather too much, and it rots, it stinks. Or in verse 27, we find that God has explained that in preparation for the Sabbath day, they should gather a double amount. And then what happens on the Sabbath day? People are out there trying to gather on the Sabbath day when there isn't any. Both of those are examples of how their hearts were reacting to the wilderness. They didn't want to be dependent on the Lord. They wanted to be in control. All three of these reactions are symptomatic of the root of discontentment with God's ways in our lives. And aren't they the very same issues that you and I face? There is this element of aversion in our hearts, of resistance to being fully dependent on the Lord, to being daily dependent on the Lord. And you and I are called to that. Even if our refrigerator is full of food, and that may be fine and good, there are many ways in which we are daily dependent on the Lord, and we need to cultivate that sense of daily dependence on him as we walk with him. And so what happens is we store up manna, so to speak, and God lets it go bad because he's disciplining us. Or we go out to gather in ways forbidden by God, and we're surprised when we come up ultimately empty. The prophet Haggai use an apt illustration to show this to a later generation of Israelites, their failure to trust the Lord. He says in Haggai chapter 1, verse 6, you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. The prophet is saying you earn money and you take your wallet or your purse and you put the money in there and it's got holes in it and it falls through. That's what you're doing because you're neglecting the things of the Lord. And God isn't going to let you succeed in that way. Oh, he might let you succeed in an earthly way, but ultimately, he's going to discipline you and test you and work in your life to teach you as a believer, ultimately, to trust in him. Grumbling reflects a heart that is not fully trusting the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, how easy it is for us to want to blame someone when life doesn't go our way. You know, if you're on a plane and there are storms in the area and the plane is delayed. Somehow you want to blame the airline, even though the storm wasn't the airline's fault. I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal this week about the comeback of Al-Qaeda in the world and how it's been springing up in Asia and Africa and everything. And this one editorial was very interesting because it talked about how recruiters for Al-Qaeda do it and what mindset they prey upon. And it says, um, that, they, that they use chat rooms now and social media and so forth. And, that, and it, to quote this article, it says, the narratives used by Al-Qaeda and its affiliates all follow the same pattern. Recruiters prey on local grievances, young men's lack of purpose, and their feelings of anger, humiliation, and resentment. The recruiters combine this, now this is an important part, they combine this with distorted religious edicts along with conspiratorial messages that blame the U.S. and the West for their problems. With these seemingly clear explanations for their problems, recruits feel empowered and embrace the jihadist mission. In other words, they're saying recruiters for jihad really are so successful 
sometimes because they can prey on people wanting to have someone to blame for the problems that their life has. Blame it on the USA. Blame it on the West. And don't we see that in our nation as well? Blame the government, you know, when all else goes wrong. Or blame your parents, blame your family, blame your husband or your wife, blame your children, blame anyone you can find. You know, that's our tendency, to find someone to blame. There's got to be someone to blame. But the interesting thing is, we find in Exodus 16 that ultimately, this kind of grumbling is against the Lord. Now, there might be appropriate ways to complain when something needs to be done. That's, I'm not saying that's not the case, but this hard attitude, we need to repent of it and return to the Lord. In fact, it's a far different thing to complain against the Lord than it is to complain to the Lord. The Israelites weren't complaining to the Lord. The Lord instructs us to pour out our heart cry to him in true prayer. That is psalm-like complaining. There are complaints that are called psalms that are called psalms of complaint. That's not what the Israelites were doing, and that's often what we don't do. We don't do it in a psalm-like way. And that brings us to my final point. In his grace, God hears us and calls us to draw near him. This is really an amazing aspect of Exodus 16. In his grace, God hears us. He even hears our grumbling when it's not right, and he calls us to draw near him. It's amazing. You see this in verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 11. It's repeated over and over again. God heard the Israelites grumbling. And he wasn't saying the grumbling was right or good, but he is gracious. And in fact, in verse 9, he says, he instructs them to have the Israelites come near to him, draw near to him. And God wants us to learn more and more to turn to him in the wilderness journey. There's a great example of this in Psalm 63. When David is in the wilderness himself, we're not absolutely sure where he is, but it's very likely that this is a psalm penned when he's fled Jerusalem, when his own son Absalom has caused an insurrection and a civil war against him, and David's life is in danger, and Absalom is at the heart of this, and David is fleeing, and he's in the wilderness, the psalm introduction says, and David cries out, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land. Here's David in a difficult situation, in the wilderness, and he's seeking the Lord. What an example for us. David takes the realities of life in the wilderness, and he turns it into a springboard of prayer, seeking the Lord, saying that ultimately his thirst and his hunger is for the Lord. The remarkable promise of the gospel is that because of Jesus Christ, And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, God takes the wilderness and turns it into a place of richness and satisfaction in himself. That's what the gospel is all about. The Old Testament foreshadows this time and time again when it talks about the Messiah who will come and the Messiah will make the wilderness blossom and bloom. 
It's a wonderful thing. All of it looked ahead to Jesus coming and for our sakes, experiencing the greatest wilderness of all, the wilderness of the wrath of God on sins. Jesus experienced the wilderness fully so that we wouldn't have to experience it fully in that sense. And now even in the worst of the wilderness journey of this life for you and me as believers in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is present with his people in the wilderness and he satisfies us with his love and his comfort and his joy. What we have, I hope you see it, what we have is so much better than the Israelites had with the cloud, the presence of the Lord visibly there with them. That's nothing compared to Jesus Christ present powerfully in our lives. And yes, they had that in one sense, but not in the full sense that New Testament believers have now. That is God's plan. That is God's way with us. He wants us in the wilderness. We cannot escape that journey of this life, but it's there that we learn to trust in his unfailing love. And we know that the wilderness journey does not last forever. It will not be long until you and I see Jesus face to face. And then all the sorrows along the journey, all the heartaches, all the fears, all the warfare against remaining sin will finally be done when we see Jesus Christ. It's not far off for any of us. It's interesting, in John 6... The people are asking Jesus for more bread. And they quote Moses and Exodus 16, and they said, Moses gave them manna. They're they're wanting some more miracles of bread, multiplying the bread. Jesus says to them these words, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is speaking about himself. He's the true bread. Jesus is the bread of life. And the crowd then says to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Give us this bread always. I hope that is the heart cry of your life. Jesus, give me the bread of life always. If you haven't come to Jesus Christ and experienced the forgiveness of sins, the new life in Christ. I hope that you come to the bread of life. And if you know him, may he be the one who sustains you in the wilderness journey of your life. Amen. Father, we want to learn to trust you and to treasure you more deeply every day. We confess that we are often grumblers as well as the Israelites It's easy for us to take our eyes off of you and put them on the circumstances of our lives. So help us, we pray. Help us to be directed by your word. Help the the word that you give us be the guardrails of our thinking and of our praying and of our living, that we would trust in your unfailing love and abide in Jesus Christ. This is what we need, O Lord, and we pray that you would bring it about. In Christ's name we pray, amen.